Hello and welcome to episode one of the Apple Insider Podcast. It's our inaugural episode and we're happy to join you. My name is Stephen Robles, contributor at Apple Insider, and I'm here with editor Daniel Dilger, who's been a longtime Apple Insider editor. Welcome, Daniel. Hi, thanks for having me, Stephen. Yeah, and uh, well, thanks for having me too. I know you've been here a while, so it's a great time, I think, to start an Apple Insider podcast, especially with the news this week. Uh, so I'm pretty excited to talk about it, especially Apple's earnings call. And that was kind of the, the biggest news this week. I don't know if it – were you surprised by it? I mean, it's pretty amazing numbers that they posted. It was pretty surprising. I, I think everybody was expecting it to be high. And looking at the analyst estimates, um, there was this range. I, I think their guidance was in the high 60s, and they flew quite a bit above that. But I was just seeing just the high-end estimates from analysts, just guessing that it was going to be close to 70, and thinking – there's that cycle where analysts just guess whatever, and if Apple doesn't make that, then Apple failed as opposed to the analysts. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and it's, I mean, you can, a great article on the on our site is uh, the By the Numbers article, where um, there's a breakdown of all the, of the numbers, but it was $74.6 billion in revenue and $18 billion in profit, which is, that's really the astounding number, you know, to me. And they now have $179 billion cash on hand which uh, is just wild. So I would check out the, the buy the numbers, but that's just a crazy amount of money. <laughs> it's just, it's amazing. And, and all, as for somehow, the analysts always seem to say, it always seems like Apple's in trouble. You know, if you kind of follow the mainstream tech journalism, it's like if they don't release the watch, if they don't release this, then they're in trouble. But I, I don't, the numbers really don't reflect that. So I'm not sure where, where they get that impression. It's also interesting to point out that the numbers that, that people are talking about for profit for Apple are its after-tax um, net profits. So right. $18 billion is net profits. That's after they paid six, set aside $6.4 billion for taxes. So their, their operating profits are 24.2. So right. some of the companies, for example, Samsung reports operating profits, which are pre-tax profits, and, and Samsung pays very little in taxes. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of times people have compared operating profits with net profits. And I think it was in the summer of last year, 2013, maybe it was, when they were, Strategy Analytics came out with their story about how Samsung had passed Apple in profits, but they were comparing the wrong things. There's some of the analysts were looking at that. Right. There was one, um, TechCrunch ran an article, and it was Apple's biggest quarter was the biggest of any company ever as far as profits, which I found pretty staggering. It was actually a Russian... Uh, gas extracting company, their biggest quarter was $16.2 billion in profits. That was the largest ever before Apple's quarter this past quarter of 18.04. And the statistic was of the top 20 top earning quarters, uh, 15 of those 20 are oil and gas producers, and then Apple are the other five of the top 20 uh, biggest earning quarters as far as profit. And that's you know, mostly it's ExxonMobil, you know, it's always the most profit, but Apple took it. It's pretty um, crazy. Another crazy comparison that somebody pointed out is in the, the S&P 500, 80-something, 87% of them, if you, if you took 87% of, of the large cap companies in the S&P 500 index, Apple earned more profits in 
those three months, the last three months of 2014, then all those companies together earned since 2009. <laughs> right. And uh, get your brain around that, that how numbers could be that big. I know. And uh, I think Walt Mossberg tweeted if you took Apple's earnings just in the one quarter, they would be number 54 in the top 500 companies earning. Uh, in the world, just if you just look at their quarter earnings, they would be fifty four so it's just unprecedented and uh it's I, also interesting to see how how fast Apple's grown compared to itself. remember I think it was in two thousand ten it wasn't that it was in two thousand ten Steve Jobs noted I believe it was the same quarter that uh based on the profits they had made that quarter, which was you know the iPad had just come out, the iPhone mm-hmm. was doing really well, he emphasized the fact that on an annual basis, Apple is now a $50 billion company. Right. Now they're making <laughs> more than 75 or more than 70 in the, in one quarter. Right. And you know, it was funny before, I guess it was before, before Apple was allowed to sell the iPhone in China. You know, I think that was pretty recently this fall uh, that it opened up. Uh, analysts were saying that Apple needs to produce a cheaper iPhone in order for it to sell internationally. That uh, the, just the price was too high for it to sell in, in countries like China, where there's all these you know knockoff brands and things like that. And you know, again, it clearly, I think the analysts got it wrong again because they've you know again sold millions and millions of dollars uh, in China as well. I don't have the numbers exactly, but again, it's just one of those things where analysts, uh, I think, underestimate uh, people's hardware taste and and people's desire. I think for Apple products, you know, even in countries and again like China where they just got them. So. Well, I think a lot of a lot of people who are observing the tech industry, if they have a background in either Microsoft or working with companies that are licensing Android, they have that mentality of the only way to make money is to make increasingly cheaper devices that you can sell in, in vast quantities. So it's easy to understand why they have that mentality and why it's so hard for them to understand what Apple is doing. Mm-hmm. But it is a real vindication of Apple. Um, was it 2013 that there was this constant story about how Apple was going to come up with a cheaper iPhone? Right. And then when they, did, when they did release the iPhone 5C, which was basically their recycled last year's phone mm-hmm. in, a, in a new form factor that was easier to build, uh, the, everyone freaked out and said, this is not cheap enough. This is still a $400 phone, and it's not going to work out. And they regarded it as a failure over and over again. Just everybody was talking about how the iPhone 5C was a failure, uh, right. Because it wasn't outselling the high-end phone, right. and, and missing the real story that the 5s was Apple's expensive phone, and it was outselling everything else that they had. Right? Are they even? Can you still get the 5c? I don't even. Yes, it's still sold. Is it still sold? Oh, and, I see. Yes. And Tim Cook actually said in the, in the last, his most recent um, earnings call, he said that not only you know you know the iPhone 5 6 or the, the iPhone six and six plus are obviously. Uh, leading sales, but he said also the 5s and the 5c are also continuing to sell strong, strong. Right, right. So. but I think that that the six is still leading sales speaks to. I don't think people just want a cheap phone for a cheap phone's sake. You know, I think again people are discerning, especially when so many people have already had a smartphone, and a lot of times it's a repeat smartphone purchaser. You know, they're actually, I think, are wise to the features and again the hardware design that that they're choosing. So, what also on the call, I found interesting, you know, the iPad sales. Obviously, iPhone is big. Actually, Mac sales went up. But the uh, iPad sales continued to 
drop a little bit. And, um, you know, Tim Cook keeps saying it's just a longer a kind of recycle for people wanting to purchase a new iPad. I know for myself, I had an iPad 3 for a while, and I didn't upgrade until just this year to an iPad Air 2. So that's, I think, about a, a three- or four-year gap. Do you think that's? Do you think that actually is why uh, they're kind of seeing that drop in sales? Well, it's, it's certainly not a thing like a phone where you carry it around with you so that you want to have the latest one every year necessarily. So there is a longer um, period of usability. Right. Uh, for for an iPad, but um, I also think it's it's also a regional thing. So if you look at uh, Tim Cook in the last the last earnings session and also the one before that, he made comments regarding where iPads were growing. And in the United States, they're not growing that fast. They're they're actually shrinking most in the United States and other countries mm-hmm. where there was a sudden you know they've they've already sold to them and kind of satiated demand to an extent. There's there's still markets where they're growing in education and other things, mm-hmm. right? But where the bulk of sales are coming from is actually largely in China. And that's where there's tremendous growth. Right. That's, I'm looking at the stat. In the call, they said um, first-time iPad buyers in China, over 70% of iPad sales are first-time buyers. And in the U.S., it's 50% of buyers are first-time, which still it seems still seems pretty high. Um, you know, 50% of people. But, you know, I, I don't see, honestly, I just don't see people using a lot of tablets out and about. Uh, you know, I see some, some people using it as a laptop replacement, but it's just not as ubiquitous as the phone. Well, if you look at usage stats, uh, tablet use explodes after people come home. So the hours that people are, you know, at work, people are using PCs. Right. They come home and sitting on the couch, they use an iPad. Uh, so that's, right. That's part of it is that it has, it's, it's kind of a comfortable niche type device that right. gives you a bigger screen than you'd have on a, on a phone. Right. Absolutely. But it's also, there's also the um, Apple's in the business of selling computers. <laughs> and so to people in the United States who have been using desktop computers and, and laptops, they're continuing to buy Macs. And so the growth that's happening in the United States, people are largely – you know, among consumers that are looking for something to buy, they're tending to buy upper scale, which is, of course, what Apple wants to have happen. Whereas in other countries, in a lot of China, there's an emerging middle class that has never used computers. I remember back in 2000, um, in, in, in uh, across Asia, uh, there's less of a history of using, having a PC kind of box. And back in the year 2000, um, I had a roommate who was a, a exchange student from Japan, mm-hmm. and he was talking about how people in Japan, especially younger people, didn't have computers and they were using these smartphones. And I found it very hard to grasp. It's like, how can you possibly not have a computer? I mean, there's obviously a lot of things you can do with a computer that you can't do with a phone. And he was saying, no, it's just, just how it is. And this is what people use. And it's a, they use them differently. Right. And Japan has obviously jumped on the iPhone as being a, a, a smartphone that does a lot of things that previous smartphones didn't do. But that usage being different in different places where it's different economically and even in Japan, which is as affluent, if not more affluent than most of the U.S., they're using technology different. They're selling technology different. Instead of being the subsidized thing where you pay $100 for a phone and, and you have an expensive phone service, they, it's, it's more like an installment plan where you, you know how much the phone costs because you're paying $10 or whatever a month for it. Right. I always find that, you know, Europe is like that too in a lot of places. You 
you buy the phone, then you buy the plan, and it's not $100 subsidized phone. But I also thought it was interesting in the call, uh, Apple sold its one billionth iOS device, which is a lot of phones and a lot of iPads. And it was an iPhone 6 Plus. So, Well, they, he actually used the word shipped because they didn't actually... <laughs> right. I, well, I read that they kept, they kept it. Yeah, I imagine it's going to be in a museum somewhere. Right, yeah. Oh, and it's... Yeah. I thought that was funny. Coincidentally, it was their most expensive. <laughs> right, 64 gigabytes. The fanciest one. iPhone 6 Plus. But Was it 64? I thought he said 128. But oh, was it? It, it, I could think. Think it was a 64. Yeah, I wanted to. I mean, they're one of the highest end ones you can get. So, yeah. and, You know, the last interesting part of the call, I would say, he did mention the Apple Watch. Tim Cook said it was on track to ship in April. So, which is, he still considers it early... 2015 he said you know so we'll see i i think we'll see a march uh announcement event and then shipping in april would you agree that that would be kind of in line with what they've done before if, yeah. if you think i think some of the analysts made a question kind of suggesting because a number of, of bloggers have suggested that the i the the apple watch was slipping and that it was supposed to be out sooner it was supposed to be out in the winter and then mm-hmm. they push it into the spring. And it's like, I don't, I don't think they were going to plan to launch a brand new product on top of iPhone six. That right, would be stupid. Right. I mean, that would just be stupid. The reason that they showed it off at the same time as iPhone six was to create some alert for iPhone six and Apple pay. Right. And also to obliterate any smartphone, smartwatch sales over the winter, because people are going to be waiting for this new thing to see what's there. So that, I right. think that was the, and it's, it's similar reasons to when they announced the, the original iPhone, they did it uh, in January and it wasn't coming out for six months, but they could do that because it wasn't going to cannibalize any smartphone they already had on the market. And they also didn't want it to leak, you know, whether supply chains or FCC filings, you know, you wouldn't, you know, I'm sure with any new product, they they just don't want to see it out there. They don't want an iPhone four in the bar situation. So, you know, and they, and they just could, you know, they could announce it and, you know, it's, why not? The other thing that um, I don't think anyone's addressed uh, about Apple calling April, early 2015, <laughs> yeah. um, Apple has three words for computers that it sells, it, it, depending on when it introduced them. It's like, you know, the iMac, early, early whatever year iMac. Oh, yeah, early 2014, early... It's it's either early, middle, or late. That's true. It's not seasonal. It's not quarterly. It's it's sort of like this trimester of, right. So that's that's not unprecedented. I mean, that's how they refer to things internally. So I think, I think Apple said that knowing what they're how they sell things, and a lot of people interpreted early to mean oh it must be in January or February, which right. would not be like the ideal time to ship. No, I think that the original the so they announced the original iPhone in January, and I think the iPad was originally announced in January, available April. So, you know, people might be thinking along the line, along those lines, but. It's also an important uh, holiday in Asia. It's the Lunar New Year, which is typically, this year it's in the middle of February. It's, okay. I think it's typically can even be a little bit later than that. But um, that, that's a, it's basically Christmas in a large part of China. And I mean, it's a huge holiday. It's like everyone, there's mandatory you're not working. Everything's going right. to be. And it's also a huge gift giving season and money giving season. 
And so there was some speculation of that Apple would want to have the watch. But it's kind of the same thing as what, what we mentioned about launching two huge products on during Christmas in the West. You wouldn't really want to have iPhone 6 competing with the watch. Right. So I don't, I don't think it was really a goal to rush the watch out for Chinese New Year. Right. Do you think they'll, uh, they'll do pre-orders for the watch? I don't know. I think the watch is going to be sold differently because it's not a tech product. It is a fashion product. Right. And if you look at all the, I mean, all the bands that came out with, it right. wasn't just accessories for a tech product. It's a, it's a totally different thing than technology companies have ever shipped before. Right. Well, and you know, they hired the CEO of Burberry, you know, before it was announced and they definitely brought out some, some other fashion staff, you know, from other companies. So they're looking at it as a fashion device. I'm also curious, you know, a lot of the bloggers are saying, you know, $350 is the starting price, but those edition versions of the Apple Watch, you know, people are thinking maybe it'll be in a few, you know, $1,000 or, or so. I think it's going to be, it might be even much more than that, you know, especially the 18 karat gold band and watch. So I'd be curious to see what those actually come out when they announce it. Yeah, solid gold costs a lot of money, but also the uh, the bands. I mean, the the Milanese Link band that's that's expensive to make. Right, right. And Apple's not going to use cheap materials, you know. So, so yeah. And, and they they're already shipping tons of huge production. I mean, the iPhone is is a volume device. It's hard to imagine why people would want to carry something else in addition to an iPhone all the time, like everybody. Whereas the watch right. is more of a status symbol. So it's it's certainly aiming at a higher end sort of sort of allure, and the, I think they're making such a range for it so that people who want to really show off can, can buy an expensive one. But there's, it's also fairly accessible on the on the lower end for you know pe- people. As a in, fitness you know, band, yeah, sports and right. And, 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 and the, the more I've been able to use Apple Pay too, uh, it's going to be, I think, attractive to see how that, how simply that will work. You know, if you can just hold your wrist up, not even have to do Touch ID, but just hold your watch over the thing and your phone's still in your pocket. I'm curious. I'll see how, how easily that will work because that, that will actually be pretty convenient. I've been using Apple Pay in, in stores where, I'm, where I see it there. <laughs> Able to. It yeah. seems to work pretty well, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've used it at Walgreens. Um, I've actually... There was a small produce stand uh, where I am in Central Florida, um, you know, one cash register mom and pop store, and they got one of the small keypads, and it had the NFC symbol on it, so they can accept Apple. I was able to use it there too, so you know, it's it's not expensive to get to accept it. But I know some places like Best Buy, I tried using it there, and they actually have the NFC symbol on their payment on their payment pad, and. I actually held my iPhone up to it, and my phone said payment accepted, but something popped up on the on their screen saying, "Oh, we don't accept that." So that was pretty. I know there's the whole conglomerate. I think it's you know Publix, Walmart, Best Buy are all working with currency and are not going to accept Apple Pay. But it's pretty ridiculous to have the symbol on the point of sale system and not be able to accept it. Yeah, they they had been using it for a while, and they they purposely turned it off. Right. Same thing, I think, with CVS and a couple other ones. Yeah. So, but, so that'll be interesting. Apple Watch coming in April. 
Oh, I wanted to mention the um, the YouTube and HTML5 uh, deal. We have an article on the site with that, but basically YouTube is going to default all its videos to HTML5 now instead of Flash. And I couldn't be happier about that. I looked back and, you know, Steve Jobs, he wrote the letter about an open letter about Flash. And I actually looked back, it was April 2010 was the letter uh, that he wrote. So five years later, I think it's we're finally seeing the the last breaths of Flash leave the internet. So, well, Apple really put the nail in Flash in two thousand seven when they came off the iPhone without Flash. Right. And at the time, I I remember when they first demonstrated the iPhone, there were a lot of people asking, "When is it going to get Flash? And when is it going to get uh, what was the other thing? Uh, when was it going to run Java?" Right. And Apple said, "Java, no. Flash, maybe." <laughs> and right. they worked on it for a while, and. and because I was writing a lot about it, and people were like, this isn't possible. You can't possibly have an internet device that doesn't run Flash. Because at the time, not only was every web video, that was the big thing that was supporting right. Flash, but there were also like Flash games and things like that. Mm-hmm. And there was, a, there was some, I don't know how useful it was, but there was a lot of uh, navigation on websites that was in Flash. Right. Well, a lot of websites were just wholly Flash. Every photographer's website <laughs> was Flash. Yeah. Right. Because it was, you know, it was just like an alternative to HTML. And it was, it's kind of, it seems kind of counterintuitive that Google, which has this reputation of using open standards and, and really wanting to pr- promote the web, is this open place where they can sell ads, right. uh, to be so staunchly supporting of Flash, which is a proprietary uh, black binary hole <laughs> right. that's the opposite of the web in, you know, in every sort of way. And part of it was just that Apple, that Google was so deeply invested in Flash, particularly with YouTube, and being like knowing that it could not, with the with the when the, when HTML5 really appeared, when it first came out, the, the number of things you could do, especially with DRM and and having a video that people couldn't just skip around and they couldn't just skip past the ads, right. that was one of the main reasons why Google was hesitating to support it. So at this point, HTML5 has the ability to uh, force ads into video. So that's why Google right. And I know, and I know Netflix uses Silverlight. Um, so I guess you don't need Flash to run Netflix. I don't believe. Silverlight is basically Flash. It's Microsoft's right. version of Flash. Right. But I just, just Flash itself. I mean, does Hulu and some of the other streaming services still use Flash? I'm not sure. Huh. I haven't used them online. I, I yeah. use a lot of that on Apple TV. And right, that's what I do. Yeah. Was you know, uh, and they have all the apps, so there's no, there's almost no reason. But yeah, it'll be it'll be curious. It's kind of annoying. I mean, I, it feels like Flash still has an update at least once a month for some reason, and it always pops up. And it, it's still a lot of times will freeze a tab in Safari for me. Yeah. Uh, so I'll be glad to see it gone. Someday. A lot of advertising used Flash too. That was a big deal. Is right. used it for doing things that HTML5 again wasn't able to do originally. I think right. I, there's very little that I think you could at this point do in in Flash that you can't do in HTML5. So it's really changing rapidly. Right. Well, also, uh, the iOS and OS 10 update that came uh, this week: uh, iOS 8.1.3 and OS 10 10.10.2. Uh, the iOS update uh, would decrease the amount of memory needed to install the update which i think was welcome i don't know if 
it decreases enough. I know a lot of the people that I know that were having trouble updating from their phones had less than a gigabyte of free space. So I don't know how well it's going to um, to help them. But uh, it also fixed the multi-touch gestures on iPad, which um, I was thankful to see that some of those weren't working. Have you noticed any significant differences? I haven't done exhaustive testing. I, I'm also in the beta program for 1010, so I had 1010 to like the initial builds of it for a while. I see. And um, there's been a lot of talk recently about how both iOS 8 and OS 10 uh, Yosemite have kind of strayed from the standard of quality that Apple's had before. Right. And I think it's, it's, it's more evident in iOS because original builds of iOS, I mean, the original versions of iOS were bulletproof. Right. As Apple has moved really quickly in, in, in introducing a lot of new features, there's, there's simply just more to break. But yeah, I mean... To have something that just feels totally solid. Right. You know, and honestly, for me, the, my only, the biggest problem with iOS I have right now, and maybe I, it's a beta feature, so I shouldn't really complain about it, but I, up, I turned on iCloud Photos beta uh, when, I, when iOS 8 came out, and I get messages that it hasn't uploaded any photos uh, for the past, like, three months. Um, and I open it, Wi-Fi's on, and I've turned it off and back on again, and uh, it still doesn't sync. So that's the only major problem I find personally on on iOS. But on OS 10, I had I was having some Wi-Fi issues on a 2014 iMac and my uh, a 15-inch MacBook Retina, and it seemed like the new OS 10 update fixed that. So I was definitely happy to see that. Have you- uh, I've had a couple of issues that are really frustrating related to just like simple things like copy and paste. Really? Like in I would, iOS? Paste, well, on OS 10 I'd notice, you know, you'd copy something and then paste it somewhere else. And it's like, what is what's going on here? Because <laughs> it wouldn't it wouldn't have copied what it appeared to have copied and it would paste something else. And it just seems like such a basic thing, but I don't I have haven't actually like looked into it. I don't know if they've made architectural changes that are changing how that works. Um and then also on iOS, there's a lot of places where part of it is if you're navigating the web, there's a lot of weirdness on the web that trying to select text across something that uses all kinds of different um, weird HTML is just not very good at it. Right. Um, but also there's a lot of places where you notice little buggy things like if you're, if you're commenting, commenting using Facebook within like, a, like something like TechCrunch that has Facebook comments. Right. A lot of times you, you'd start editing, and if you clicked outside and clicked back in, it wouldn't work. So it wasn't clear to me if that was the fault of iOS, if it's like some problem with Facebook, some interaction problem, or uh, something on some other level. I have um, noticed Safari, both on OS X and iOS, I've had more increasing issues, I'll say, uh, since iOS 8. Just m- mostly things freezing. You know, sometimes even on iOS, I'll have a, a tab freeze. I'll have to close out or even, you know, double tap and swipe up to close Safari and reopen it. And uh, it's been on multiple websites, so, you know, I don't... I think part of the reason why it's why it is evident, I mean, everyone's seeing it, right. but why it's, why it's something people are seeing is they're comparing the fully patched, I mean, has been updated for a year iOS 7, you put on iOS 8 and you're, you're going back, you're starting over with a lot of new things. So... I think Apple is also moving quicker than they have in the past. They've they've right. frequently moved really fast with OS 10, introducing 
some new architectural stuff that you're like, hey, Apple, I think you're going a little too fast here because you're breaking my stuff. <laughs> but, right. So they are they are doing the, the Facebook thing about move fast and break things. Yeah. Which is frustrating, especially if you're trying to do production work. Yeah, I do remember, you know, back Lion, Mountain Lion. I think Mountain Lion was the first one that came out just over a year after Lion. But before that, it was, you know, two to three years between OS X updates. Um, and yeah, those... there was a period of time when they first came out with OS X. It was every year they'd come out with a new one, and developers were like, hey, this is too much new stuff. Because it was fundamental things that were changing every year. Right. And that's, that's when you really notice apps breaking. You know, I've used uh, Ustream uh, to, to broadcast some things every once in a while and other apps like that that have kind of been broken in Yosemite since it came out. Um, and just recently, you know, developers have been able to issue patches. So it's not even just little app developers that are struggling to keep up, but even some of the larger companies that, you know, you would expect. It's, it's difficult to, to kind of work around all the changes. Yeah, I think there's some friction with developers in... Obviously, for developers, if you're fixing bugs, it's hard to it, it's hard to charge for new versions that only work better. Right. People like, assume that things that updates should be free if it's just if you're just fixing problems. When in reality, it's it's harder to fix problems than it is to add new features. But yeah. uh, it's hard it's hard to pay for things that are not adding new features. Oh, right. So developers are trying to add new features or, or do some significant obvious value to their apps and. At the same time, they're having to, to fix things and keep things up to date with whatever new features Apple's releasing. So there is some tension in terms of like how do you how do you balance that? How do you keep things moving quickly enough? And I think Apple's radically changed how software is sold and delivered. Oh yeah, and especially with the App Store, um, they've changed the expectations of what people pay for software. Yeah, and it's different. I mean, iOS apps are incredibly different from what we've ever paid in the past. But even the App Store on, on the Mac, even though the price of desktop software is higher and people have a different expectation of, of what it's going to deliver, um, it has changed dramatically. And the expectation that software should continue to work on new versions of the I of, of the operating system is also a kind of a fundamental change that Apple's made quite recently. Right. And I, I always find it interesting, you know, Apple come out uh, like Transmit or something like that where it'll cost nine ninety nine on the App Store. And people just kind of get up in arms about it and saying it's just too expensive and, you know, is it even worth it? And, you know, I guess, you know, my kids will never know the days of software in a box, you know, that you get for $60, you know, cheap software, $60. So it it is very different. But they've also had issues recently, especially with the the addition of extensions and the kind of the share sheet stuff with iOS 8. They were, again, like Transmit and uh, PCALC and things like that where, They'll deny something or they'll deny a feature, and then the app developer has to kind of um, appeal it with Apple, and then Apple will end up approving it. So, you know, it's it's also been difficult for developers there. Yeah, specifically with, with those two examples, uh, I think Apple is working really hard to balance being able to support what happens. And so they're trying to prevent things from... Um, if you think about like a specific example, uh, pcalc is the calculator. Right. It's like a, a sort of a desktop widget to start with, and they were like, "Hey, why don't we just put this in the notifications bar?" And on the Mac, it's not that big of a deal to have have sort of a a busy thing going on in the notifications right. tab. But on on iOS, be, the the structure there, I mean, the 
the infrastructure behind it is you're pulling down a sheet and you're running something on top of what's already running. And you have finite processing capacity and memory storage and all these kind of things, um, free memory. Uh, so if you put too much functionality, if you overload functionality in, in notifications within those widgets, yeah, and and granted, I only I only run a makes couple. Makes everything else look bad. It makes it makes the iOS look bad. It makes other apps look like they're not working correctly. Right. And so I think Apple was trying to balance that. And and a lot of times, uh, when you get an app rejection, it's not Apple that's doing it. It's not like the eighty thousand employees of Apple like collectively voted. You know, no, we're not going to do this. Right. It's one person who's trying to make a, a decision. And sometimes the decisions they make are wrong. So I think right. there's a little bit too much effort, too much. Not too much attention because a lot of these issues need to be talked about. But uh, I think some of the coverage of, of some of these issues is overblown sometimes. Of like, oh, Apple did this bad thing. And it's like, well, no, this is something that's being worked out. It's really not that big of a deal. Right. Certainly good to the developer, but, you know, this is something that just needs to be worked out. It's not like. Right. And I think and, and in all the cases, I think Apple has conceded to what the developer is wanting to do. Uh, you know, so transmit you can now upload files directly to iCloud Drive. Peacock you can it allows the calculator in the in the notification center. So I think they've made quote unquote the right decisions in regards to those apps. But I guess it also speaks to the amount of innovation that iOS developers are trying to push forward. You know, because you don't see this kind of problems on other systems, on other mobile OSs, because there's the innovation is just not there. Uh, especially yeah. so that, that's kind of like the opposite of what we we're talking about too with you know apple trying to push things in the os and developers struggling to keep up well developers are also trying to fully utilize the the platform and features that apple's doing sometimes in ways that apple didn't anticipate and so there's a little bit of apple trying to say hey I, i'm not sure if this is going to work we, we didn't even think you were going to do that and so some of these things just take time to figure out and work out and... right and that always been i think the prediction of a lot of journalists you know ios would uh, incorporate more desktop class features into it, and the desktop brings uh, gets the simplicity from the mobile OS. And, and just like with desktop OSs, the closer you get to that level of, of functionality and power, you just run into more issues. You know, I think that's kind of what we've seen this year. G even given uh, the issues that we've seen, uh, you know, I, I have an Android tablet I, I use uh, periodically, and you know, obviously I, I use PCs, and I think. Despite the, the issues we've seen, it's still one of the most solid OSs that you can use. And the issues are really more of a nuisance than, you know, I never, I mean, my, my iPhone does, I don't see it crash. You know, I, I, I don't get the, the white Apple screen of death, you know, that, you know, every once in a while, like maybe a few times a year, but, but nowhere near the, the amount of force closing on apps or other things that I would see on, on other uh, mobile OSs. It's kind of interesting when you mentioned that. I, I remember that kind of being a situation with iOS 7 when it first came out. Oh, yeah. I'm trying to think how much of that was during the developer period and how much of it was after they released it. But there was kind of a thing where certain apps, you'd be using it and all of a sudden, oh, Apple logo, and then it would come up and it would restore so much of the environment. It's like, did it crash? Did it actually right. crash? Or did it, just, did it just like show me an Apple for some reason? Right. It would, it would always come back very quickly. Yeah. Like it, it wasn't starting up from an off state. It was just, yeah, it, it was strange. I did, I never did the iOS seven developer preview. Um, I, I did it when you know the public release came out, but I, I, I experienced that a number of times for iOS seven, you know, even with the the general release. Um, 
and there was also some weird, you know, that was the big design change. So I, I remember there was, like, if you go to an app uh, f- from a spotlight search on the phone, like, some weird graphic might show up and something would be wonky in how it looked. But um, a lot of those nuisances they fixed yeah, in iOS 8, I thought I saw. But, yeah, I've had a lot less general crashes. Uh, I think Apple set the expectation for iOS so high that it's really easy when you see something like that, the crashes in iOS 7 or, you know, little things in iOS 8 that don't work right, um, it really stands out more. Whereas I've worked with a lot of PC people. I mean, I, I've supported a lot of people working on Windows for a long time back in the day. And when things are frequently breaking, people have a sense that it's their fault. They're like, here's a computer right. system that I'm obviously not able to use because it's just not working all the time. And, you know, this must be something I'm doing wrong. Whereas when you get to the point where things are working pretty well, then you notice, like, oh, this crashed. That's not supposed to happen. Why does that happen? Right. Yeah, it's true. You know, I have I had heard a, a number of journalists mention Scott Forstall being the one that when he was over iOS, that he was very meticulous about errors and bugs and things like that. And he was the one that kept iOS really solid. And uh, maybe that's true to a point, but also what iOS is doing with iOS 7 and 8 is nowhere near what iOS you know, four, five, and six we're doing as far as, you know, extensions and widgets and, uh, you know, what apps can do in the background with multitasking. So uh, he may have been meticulous about that, but I think it's just grow, growing pains from uh, what they're trying to do with the OS. Yeah, there's definitely been a lot, like, major leaps in core sophistication in what's going on that is not obvious to the user, maybe in, in a lot of cases. But, yeah, it's really difficult to roll out rapidly, especially... Uh, you know, the, over the last couple of years, there's been this sense that Android was catching up and beating Apple in, in certain areas because they had certain features. And there's been a series of features, you know, whether it's things that don't really matter, like being able to um, put widgets on your desktop. I always thought that was kind of a stupid thing. Uh, but, but even more significant features in Android, uh, they've rolled out several things far in advance of Apple. One of them was LTE. Just being able to support that on a on a hardware level, they were a couple of years before Apple. There was fingerprint scanners and stuff several years before Apple even bought um, Authentic. And there was a number of areas where there's kind of this growing perception that Apple or that Google and the Android ecosystem were innovating faster because there's so many more companies involved. And I think that has really crashed because they're just not able to. No one is able to make any money using Android. The only thing that was is Samsung, and they have, have collapsed. I mean, their profits are just dead. Right. They're going to start over from scratch, and it's going to be difficult for them to start over because they're facing all this competition from other companies. So actually, Samsung is looking at their own Tizen environment. So it'll be interesting to see what sort of competition Android pushes forward going forward because Android, right. Android 5.0 wasn't, didn't really push anything really new. Right, it was mostly designs. Yeah, this kind of web appearance, and you know, it's supposed to work better on older phones. I was like, well, that's right, that's a big release. <laughs> but the older the older phones will never see it though. Yeah, but but I think cheaper level phones, like I see. going forward, cheaper level phones are going to be able to run the new OS as opposed to being kind of right. stuck past on Android two. I do think I think Apple Pay and NFC was the the final. Uh, kind of nail in the coffin that Apple is missing features because you know, Google, Google Wallet's been out for a number of years and Android phones had NFC for 
again, also for the same amount of years. So I think that was the last big feature you could say, oh, Apple doesn't have NFC. Uh, so now it's here, and it's, you know, as far as hardware, you know, even fingerprint scanners, at least now Apple has leapfrogged because Touch ID is, usability-wise, is so much better than any Android implementation. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what, especially hard, when it comes to hardware, I'm not sure what hardware features uh, Android can now bring to the table that Apple does not have or uh, will match. So be interesting. Well, the Android vendors that come out with... Um for example, well, Samsung, they make screens. So they have a lot of screens that they're not selling to Apple that are like extremely high-resolution smartphone screens, smartphone-sized. Right. They have all these middleware, all these middle-sized screens between something that looks like an iPhone and something that looks like an iPad. And so they're just trying to make this infinite variety of devices that they don't really give a lot of thought into who would use this. Who's, right. who's going to need a, an, a tablet seven inches wide? What are you going to do with it? Are you going to run apps on it, or is it just going to be sort of like a big iPhone or you know a big phone? Right. I was intrigued. Uh, I never heard of, after it got released, but the Samsung Edge, it was the uh, smartphone that had the it was a flat screen on top, and then like the right edge was actually an angled screen, yeah. uh, and it was meant so you can do quick access with your thumb and such. And um, I thought that was intriguing. You know, at least at the very least, they're they're kind of throwing a, stuff against the wall. You know, it's not going to sell huge amounts and may not even be good. But at least they're attempting to try different things. But as regularly, those things don't. Car. What's I that? Mean, that's very much a concept car, though. It, it's not something right. that was actually meant to sell. And they, you know, I think they are turning into a product. But it, you know, it's a very small release. They're not right. expected to actually sell it. Right. So it's, it's easy to throw out a bunch of ideas like that that are unfinished. And Apple could be doing that too if they didn't care about making money. <laughs> Apple, Apple could be right. dumping out all this stuff. They could have pushed out you know, half-finished stuff a long time ago. But clearly that is not how you make products to make money because Google Wallet didn't make any money. Right. They didn't think about a lot of things. And even even my friends who who use Android phones now, they I think 90% of them use Galaxy phones. You know, they'll see something like the Samsung Edge and it looks intriguing and it's exciting. They're like, oh yeah, I'm going to get that one. And I think after, after they think about it for a little while and, you know, maybe even go to a store and hold it, they're like, mm. you know, it wasn't uh, as great as the excitement uh, leading up to it or, or, or seeing it for the first time. So even those gimmicks, I think, are kind of fall short, even in those who are faithful to Android. They usually just will go back to either the HTC One or the Galaxy S and just kind of whatever the next Galaxy phone is is the one they'll pick up. Yeah, I think Apple's really emphasized. Uh, I think Steve Jobs started talking about it, and also you know Tim Cook started bringing it up, too. It's kind of a theme that comes up every time he talks. And it's that engineering, a lot of engineering is saying no. Right. You don't just do everything. I mean, that, that's that's more product management is to say, no, we're not going to do that because it's maybe a cool idea, but we're not going to be stuck supporting it. And it's not really going to make something that, that makes people productive or even happy with the product. It's, it's sort of a, a giga feature that we've come up with, but it's not good enough to actually sell. And if you look at the edge, I mean, you look at it and you're like, oh, that's kind of cool that the screen wraps around the edge. And you're like, what would you do with that? How does that impact battery life? Right. And, you know, how does that make for complications in the OS that increase new problems? And what benefit does it bring? And you look at it and it's like, how does that actually benefit you to, to look at the side of your phone <laughs> to get notifications or something? And, you know, overall, it's just, it's kind of a cool giga notion. But in terms of a product, it's not something that's going to work. 
Right. I was, um, there's a Johnny Ive interview with uh, Variety, I believe. And uh, I'll post the link in, uh, in, in show notes, which will be on the, on the post on Apple Insider. But uh, the quote that he said during his uh, interview was, you're seduced by a feature at the expense of making a great product. I think that's a lot of what uh, Samsung and a lot of Android producers do. It's uh, like a standout feature. Here's the one thing that's cool about this phone, whether it's a side screen or whatever, but it's really at the expense of an overall product. So I think that's what the edge is. Yeah, so part of it, there's a design level where you're adding something that's taking away from it being functionally a good design. And there's also these other problems of how does this contribute to how well it works? stability and the battery life and, and things like that. And also, how does it relate to price? You're putting an extra screen on there. That's going to jack up the price tremendously. Is there a better way that you could use that component budget to put things on the phone that make it actually much faster? And you look at the investments Apple's made in you know 64-bit chips and having optimizations in the software and hardware that make things run so quickly that it just feels fluid. And those kind of investments add... It's a different way to spend money on making a better product, but they they end up in a product that is much funner to use, much more fun to use, right. <laughs> much faster. So it enables you to do new things in the future that are actually practical, like these apps that can now do like video, uh, uh, live previews of video transforms and stuff right in the app. It just boom, it just right. happens. Right. And to do that in a mobile device is amazing. And is that on the same level as having a screen that? curves on the side so it looks cool in a <laughs> picture on CNET, you know? Right. That's true. And I think that leads us nicely into, I'll say it's our last topic because we're running pretty long, but the Microsoft HoloLens, which Microsoft had their big Windows 10 event, showed off Windows 10 and Windows 10 on their uh, phone, mo Windows phone platform. But the last thing they brought out was the HoloLens, uh, I guess it's not really virtual reality. It's just kind of an augmented reality visor and you had a, a, a quite the piece on Apple Insider, um, kind of bashing it, and I, I'm inclined to agree. It was it seemed very uh, weird. It seemed unfinished and just kind of a, I don't know. I don't know what would you call it. I wasn't trying to bash it as a product. What I was really trying to highlight and, and sort of skewer is not that Microsoft is trying something new. Which, you know, good for them. They're trying something new. You know, it's a cool idea. Right. Um, it's how it was presented and why. Because what they were presenting is, here's our new Windows 10, and here's the features it has, and there just wasn't a lot of interest there. I mean, there wasn't anything terribly exciting. It's like, hey, we're still working on, uh, on our next operating system. It's going to be, you know, maybe the end of the year. And what did they have to show? There wasn't enough to show, so they had to pull out a couple more ponies. And one of them was this screen company that they bought a couple years ago, it's, it's like a huge iPad that they market to companies. Right. And it's probably a cool product. I'd love to have one in my house. It's just huge, <laughs> huge display that you, you right. can t touch and do things with. But, I mean, this is a 50, I think it's 25 to 50K product. I mean, it's yeah. quite expensive. Right. It's not something that consumers are going to sell, sell. So this is, you know, this is kind of the typical, like, here's something cool that we do. You know, here's a business that we bought. It kind of makes us look cool when we try to sell you Windows. And then, of course, HoloLens was sort of the, the icing on top of that, that here's this new thing we're working on in our labs, and it's a smart idea. And what I found most kind of like needing to be critiqued was not that they were trying something new. It wasn't that here's some new technology. Oh, well, you know, this isn't perfect. That's not what I was trying to communicate at all. 
what I was looking at is how they were presenting it. Because first of all, a lot of the stuff that they showed was stuff that has been demonstrated years ago. And they were kind of taking credit for it, saying, like, here's what we developed in our labs. It's like, no, you didn't. This is, this is stuff that was on, the, on YouTube two years ago. <laughs> right. And part of it was um, presented in a way that didn't make any sense. They're, they're creating this vision of the future, this complete nonsense. This idea that you would put on goggles to walk around your house. And some of the things that they show are, you know, that would be kind of a, an interesting application of this technology. Maybe not viable. But some of the things were just completely dumb. Like you're going to put visors on your face and watch a pretend flat screen on your wall where you have an opening on your wall. Right. You're using this tiny bit of the pixels on the screen that you have on your face to, to fake watch a soccer game on the, on the wall in this basically a, a visual inch of your display vision. It's like, no, if you want to put goggles on your face, it would be something like the Oculus visor that Facebook bought where you have it, the surround world around you. I can see that. that would be, it would make much more sense if they positioned this as sort of a Xbox console thing where you're enwrapped in a game. It's like, yeah, that would be something along the lines of a real product that maybe Microsoft could sell. Right. And I, I see a couple couple of big problems with it. One, from the failure of Google Glass, which they just recently stopped selling to the public, to even the decline in uh, the desire for 3D TVs, it seems like people don't really want to wear stuff on their face for entertainment, like to do things that they want to do. Um, so, and, and this again, from what it looks like, it's just a massive thing to wear. But also some of the journalists who actually had hands-on time with it um, said the actual working demos that they had to use was not what they showed on stage. And the demonstration pieces had a separate battery pack that had to be kind of like attached to the visor and was kind of large and hung off to the side. And the uh, they had to manually adjust the eye tracking uh, to to match the distance in between the user's eyes and it wasn't just kind of an automatic thing. So I'm obviously it's very, very early and, uh, you know, I just, it doesn't seem like it'd be something that would sell anyway. And who knows when it's going to be available. Most likely, definitely not this year, I assume. Um, probably not till late 2016. And how much would it cost? I mean, right. it would be fantastically expensive. Even Google Glass, I mean, the, the thing that they built looks kind of, looks kind of cheap. But they were selling it. I mean, they were selling it to developers. And that was fifteen a big 15. profit margin. It was like, yeah, it was fifteen hundred dollars. Right, right. It never went down. Right. They kept talking about how there is going to, at some point, cost as much as a cell phone. You know, one hundred fifty. How many people are going to buy a second cell phone to put on their face? It's going to be slower than their regular cell phone. And then walk around looking like a nerd. <laughs> right. And then, you know, with the rise of smartwatches, uh, how many people want to charge their smartphone, their tablet, their Google Glass type eyewear plus a watch, you know, I don't want to be charging four devices every night. And so. just the the idea of having that much electrical equipment like attached to your head in some fashion. <laughs> and there was this big thing about you know having a cell phone up to your head was going to give you cancer. Right. You're going to just surround your head with electronics and buzzing and batteries. <laughs> <laughs> what if you fall down and stab a battery in your yeah tent, something you know? Yeah, I'd. I'd it, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what happens. You mentioned uh, TVs, 3D television. Do you have you? Do you have a 3D television, or have you ever? I I, <laughs> I personally buy. I I buy all 
dumb TVs, and I tell everyone to buy dumb TVs as well because I say get an smart Apple TV. Watch you, right? What's that? <laughs> smart TV watches you. <laughs> right. Well, you know, an Apple TV is a hundred dollars, and the difference between a fifty-inch dumb TV and a fifty-inch smart TV is a lot of times close to a thousand. Really? You know, eight hundred to a thousand dollars. So I tell people save the money, get a larger screen television, and buy an Apple TV, which is going to be the best smart TV experience you can have. Um, but I did I did go over someone's house who had a three D television, and it was with the glasses, you know, the active whatever shutter three uh, D glasses. And we watched some football for about twenty minutes, and uh, we got kind of tired of it. <laughs> it it didn't look great, so uh, I have no desire for a three D TV. Yeah, I have. I I bought one of the. It, it was. I didn't specifically buy it because I wanted a 3D television, but it was a TV that also has 3D on it. Right. And um, so I, I very rarely have ever put glasses on. And occasionally I'll show people, you know, so you pull it out and you're like, hey, you know, some kids are going to show them this 3D television. Right. And, it, you know, it's kind of a cool effect. And it, like you say, it lasts about 15 minutes. Then you're like, man, I'm kind of tired of this. Right. And there's, there's a lot of practical problems. If you're laying on the couch sideways, it doesn't work. You have to have, to have your head perpendicular to the television. Right. And, and you have to be at a good angle. Yeah, and there's you know, it can fall off. And also just, just in general, I was thinking about how three D adds another layer of complication to what you're seeing. Cause at first it's kind of a cool effect, you know, especially especially movies that are done well. You look it doesn't look like stuff's coming at you, but it looks like you're looking at a sort of a diorama instead of a flat picture. Right. And so it gives you this sense of depth. But it also there's a lot more for your brain to think about because you're working on it. And I have a PlayStation 3 that has a lot of 3D games. Mm-hmm. And 3D is really cool with gaming for, again, about half an hour maybe. And then your brain is just overloaded. There's just so much going on that it's a lot to, a lot more to think about. That doesn't really convey so much more information. Like if you go between, if you go from black and white television to color television, there's a lot more information that your brain is handling, I guess, but it's it's um, it's not overwhelming. It's more realistic. Right. Where when it goes into 3D, it, you th- you think it should be more like real vision, but what it really is is it's forcing you to look at an image in a certain way because it's canned. It's right. not looking at an actual 3D scene where you can look at different angles and see people. It's not like a real hologram. Uh, it's just this sort of 3D image that some parts of it are have a different depth than others, a apparent depth. So it's, it's kind of a strange thing. And, and that's very similar to, I think what you get with a lot of this augmented reality, that right. it would be hard to do it in a way that is natural. and isn't just overwhelming. Yeah. And I, I think overall we've kind of leapfrogged 3d and I think 4k is going to be a much more, um, a, a bigger thing. You know, I think people are, understand 4K. They kind of you can visually see the difference, and it's too expensive now to be mainstream. But I think that will catch on much more than 3D did. And I, you know, I never really even went to. I don't go to 3D movies often. Actually, kind of never. Like when I go to the movies, I just want to enjoy the movie and not worry about glasses and 3D. So, but maybe that's a unique case for me. But there's a couple movies that were done well. Uh, I mean, Avatar was like a, a good example of a movie. It was one of the first movies that I saw where 3D wasn't just a gimmick of like, oh, the you know the slasher guy is coming at you. Oh, his knife is you know looks like it's coming at. You. Right. It it was more of a thing where you're looking at a world and you're seeing sort of a depth that kind of reinforced the size of things right. and kind of created this cinematic effect. But it's difficult to do. It really requires 
like an artistic sense of how you're going to present this. So just just to put 3D on every movie, I one of the movies that I have that's 3D is um, the Alice in Wonderland thing that Tim Burton mm-hmm. made, right. which is you know not a great movie to start with, but in 3D it's awful <laughs> because things are moving quickly and it's, it's just, it just looks jittery on the screen and it's it's really unpleasant. It's I think it was kind of fake 3D that they did in after like right. after the movie was done they added a layer to it. Right. But yeah, it is really hard to to do correctly. Yeah. So, so we'll see. We'll see what Microsoft does over the next year or two in regards to that. But anyway, Daniel, thank you for for joining me and on this first podcast. And um, you can always you can see Daniel on AppleInsider.com. Uh, it has a bunch of features and writes all the time. And uh, where can uh, people follow you on Twitter, Dan? It's Daniel Aaron E R A N. That's my middle name. Daniel Aaron Twitter. Great. And uh, definitely follow Apple Insider on Twitter if you don't already, at Apple Insider. And our tip account where uh, you can interact with us at Tip Apple Insider. And of course, subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. You'll find it there and rate it with a comment to uh, help us uh, be found by more people by rating it. And uh, you can follow me at Stephen Robles on Twitter as well. Thanks a lot for joining us on this first episode, and we'll see you next week.